0: Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to tomisticinstituteorg slash Rome. That's tomisticinstituteorg slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. My talk is entitled A Thomistic Take on Emotional
1: Tumult. I have two goals. In addition to the obvious goal of having a good time, first, to equip you to engage with Thomas's text on emotions while standing in line at Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> I intend to do this by familiarizing you with the framework and terminology of Thomas's account of the emotions and by modeling a way of interacting with Thomas's claims that you might imitate. My second goal is to endear to you the practice of reading Thomas's account of the emotions. With a view to its practical value. If you glanced at some of Thomas's texts, you know that this isn't an easy practice. Thomas writes as a philosophical psychologist and not as a clinical psychologist. That's to say, he identifies the universal principles at work in our emotional life, but he says almost nothing about how we can identify and utilize those universal principles in our own experience. This is to say, Thomas tells us what disordered emotions are, and he tells us what well-ordered emotions are, but he offers very few examples of how we can get from one to the other. I'm convinced, nonetheless, that it's worth examining Thomas's speculative account of the emotions from a practical standpoint. That's to say, it's worth asking, if Thomas were a clinical psychologist, what would he say? This is what I'll attempt to do in a talk and what I hope that you will continue to do afterwards. And I'm convinced that the helpfulness of Thomas's account in the practical sphere is also a sign of its truth. The structure of the talk is going to be funnel-shaped, beginning with the wide part and then ending with a narrow end that's hard to clean. There will be four parts, and in each part, I'll begin by presenting Thomas's principles and then follow with some proposals for how we might translate that into action. Part one is going to look at what kind of a thing an emotion is in general. Part two is going to look at some of the distinctions that Thomas draws among the 11 basic emotions that he recognizes. Part three will look at how emotions can be disordered and then part four will look at how disorder in the emotions can be reduced, the influence of the intellect and in the will. Before jumping into the funnel, I'd like to make a disclaimer regarding my claim that this talk is a Thomistic take. My comments are indeed drawn from Thomas's accounts of the emotions, as opposed to Pixar's movie Inside Out, which only identifies five emotions, and also as opposed to St. Bonaventure's account, which denies that the emotions can be the subject of virtue. Nonetheless, I'm giving a Thomistic take rather than Thomas's take, since there are a few aspects of the talk, in addition to the buffoonery, that Thomas wouldn't recognize as his own. So first, I'll be arranging Thomas's comments differently than he did in order to cobble together what I think Thomas would have said if he had asked the question that I'm going to ask, namely, What can we do to facilitate the reordering of disordered emotions? The second thing that I don't think Thomas would recognize is the phrase, emotional tumult. I hope that the surface meaning of tumultuous emotions is clear. These are the emotions that disturb us because they create commotion in us that isn't necessarily desired. There are two ways that emotions can be tumultuous, and I intend to use the phrase to refer to them both. Emotions are tumultuous in one way when they're disordered. That is, when they're disproportionate to the way things are. In another way, certain emotions are tumultuous by their very nature, even when they're not disordered. Anger and fear, for example, arise in us when we're facing some evil that's difficult to overcome. They incline us to move. Anger to move forward and fear inclines us to flee. So, throughout the talk, I'll showcase these two peculiarly tumultuous emotions in my examples. I'm choosing two because I would be all over the place if I tried to deal with all 11. And I'm choosing these two because their tumultuous character makes them very easy to recognize in our own experience. And also because anger and fear jointly depict some of the breadth of our emotional experience. According to the cutting edge 13th century biology, the bodily expressions of fear and anger are opposite. Fear is expressed in the contraction and the cooling of the humors around the heart, and anger is expressed by the expansion and the heating or the boiling of the blood around the heart. Also, on my account, I uh, my reading of Thomas's account, anger and, and two kinds of fear, namely anxiety and shame, Collectively concern our attention to evil in the past, the present, and the future. To state shame focuses us on what will come because of past events. Anger focuses on a on a present evil, and then anxiety on a future evil. Here ends the disclaimers and the introduction, and here begins the fun. <laughs> Part one, what an emotion is in general. Thomas's definition of emotion is the inclination of the appetite in response to the apprehension of something as good or bad. I'll look at the four elements of this definition, but out of order, just to be a little tumultuous. First, I'll look at the power of apprehension. Second, at the object that we apprehend, which is the, uh, I'm calling it something as good or bad. Third, the power of appetite, and then fourth, at the expression of this appetite, which I'm calling an in inclination, Apprehension. By means of our powers of apprehension, we engage reality by receiving it. This is to say, by becoming aware of reality as ordered. Our awareness of reality includes an awareness of the physical appearances of things, and also an awareness of the meaningfulness of things. Thomas would put it this way. We're capable of both sensory apprehension and intellectual apprehension. Where do these show up in ordinary experience? Imagine Jack, a six-year-old kid standing in line at Starbucks with his parents. On the sensory level, Jack is aware of the smell of coffee and caramel, the sound of a milk frother, and the sight of one of those little green spill sticks on the floor. On an intellectual level, Jack is aware that when his parents don't have coffee, they're not as fun to be around, (laughs) that the milk frother sounds like it's broken, but it's not, and that the little green spill stick shouldn't be on the floor. This is to say, on the intellectual level, Jack can apprehend not only how things are, and has been related, but also why they're related, how they might be related, and how they ought to be related. Note that Jack's awareness isn't such that he first smells, hears, and sees, and then afterward thinks. His awareness of the sensory and intelligible features of things, rather, is integrated. He'd be a very weird kid if it weren't. The next part of the definition of emotion is the object of apprehension the something that we perceive as good or bad. According to Thomas, we don't apprehend just a unified something comprised of sensory and intellectual data. Our apprehension is filtered, so to speak, by our judgments and our memories of what is good and evil for us. This is to say, in ordinary experience, we never have pure apprehension, completely divorced from our concern about what is or isn't good, pleasant, useful, or noble. Let's go back to Jack. Suppose that Jack aspires to be a medieval knight. In his book, anything is good if it involves armor, swords, and loud noises. When Jack sees the green spill stick, he immediately regards it as good because its resemblance to a sword is unmistakable, or at least to someone who is always thinking about swords. But suppose Jack's younger sister, Jill, is also standing in line and she too sees the spill stick. But because Jill recently received a shot, which was unpleasant, and because the spill stick also looks like a needle, Jill regards the spill stick as bad. Question, do Jack and Jill see the same object? In one respect, yes. Materially speaking, they see the same bit of matter. Thomists call this stable dimension of what is apprehended the material object. Material here doesn't mean physical, but rather the thing that I'm aware of apart from my evaluation of that thing. In another respect, however, Jack and Jill don't see the same object. Jack and Jill's apprehension is radically tailored to their own memories and judgments. They perceive the material object through the lens of those memories and judgments. Thomas called these lenses the formal object. The material and formal object taken together is called the intentional object. There will be a quiz. <laughs> For our purposes in this talk, there are three things to note about the intentional object. First, Everything that we apprehend is an intentional object. We never apprehend the material object apart from the lenses of our experience and judgments. This is just a feature of human apprehension. We can't take off the lenses. These lenses are necessary and a good part of our apprehension. They allow us to perceive things instantaneously as something with which we are already involved. The lenses prevent us from assuming a merely speculative, disengaged, and observing posture. Second, every intentional object is unique and unrepeatable. Intentional objects can be similar, either across time or between persons, but they always differ, insofar as each act of apprehension potentially adds another layer to the lens. third, intentional objects are what set our appetite in motion. They, they, so to speak, rouse um, our appetite into activity. And this brings us to the next part of the definition, Appetite. According to Thomas, appetite is an inherent tendency to move toward what we apprehend as good and away from what opposes that good. There are four things that Thomas says about appetite that I'd like to note. First, appetite is a passive power. It's to say it's brought into action only by the apprehension of an object, of an intentional object. Somewhat like our sense of smell, our appetite is dormant, so to speak, until it is awakened by the awareness of slightly burnt coffee beans. In our example, as long as Jack doesn't see the sword, he won't be inclined to pick it up and play with it. It's not so much out of sight, out of mind, as out of apprehension, out of appetite. <laughs> that won't. We- Catch on because it doesn't have good enough. You many catch Second, Thomas speaks of appetite as active insofar as when it's activated, it inclines us to move toward what appears to be good and away from what opposes that good. Appetite is active because it's a principle of our movement. When Jack does see the sword, his appetite inclines him to pick it up and make little sword noises. Third, Thomas doesn't believe that we need separate appetites to draw us toward good things and to drive us away from bad things. Following St. Augustine, Thomas regards evil as nothing other than the privation of good. As such, our appetite for good is sufficient to repulse us from the absence of that good. It's the same inherent orientation toward good that inclines Jack toward the green sword and away from the watchful eyes of his parents, who, if they saw him, would certainly tell him to put the dirty sword back on the ground. And a brief aside here, Um, contemporary neuroscience classifies responses as yum, yuck, and meh. (laughs) Yum and yuck clearly correlate to good and bad, but how would Thomas explain meh? (laughs) Close that aside. Fourth, while Thomas doesn't posit separate appetites for good and bad, he does believe that we have separate appetites for the good and bad sensory features of things on the one hand, and the good and bad intelligible features of things on the other hand. Roughly speaking, the sense appetite is our inherent tendency toward what the senses and sense memory presents as good, and the intellectual appetite, or the will, is our inherent tendency toward what the intellect presents as good. Rather than thinking of these appetites as inclining us toward different good things, it's more appropriate to think of the sense appetite as being inclined to a more limited class of what we call good. Sense appetite inclines us to what is pleasant and to what's useful for getting these pleasant things, while the intellectual appetite inclines us to what is good in any way, whether it's pleasant, useful, or noble. Although our ordinary experience is almost always the combined work of both appetites, and the exceptions here would be the very, very young and the very, very drunk. <laughs> we might say that it's Jill's sense appetite that inclines her away from what her senses present to her body as uh, present to her as harmful to her body. And we might say that it's Jack's intellectual appetite that inclines him toward what his intellect presents to him as fun which is probably a mix of both pleasant and noble. The fourth and final part of the definition of emotion is inclination. Thomas distinguishes between appetite itself and its movements. Appetite is the power to incline us toward the apparent good and away from apparent evil. And an emotion is the exercise of that power. That's to say, the actual experience of being inclined. Let's make this a little less mysterious with an example and some distinctions. The example, Jill has the power to do the splits on the floor at Starbucks. This is a real capacity that exists in her and not a mere logical possibility. But this power, real though it is, is different from its exercise, from her actually doing the splits. And some distinctions, there are three in case you're as into counting as I obviously am. First, an inclination isn't a decision or a choice. An inclination differs from a decision in that an inclination is not directly under our control, while a decision is so by definition. An inclination, moreover, isn't a sufficient movement to lead to action, but a decision is. The inclination to do the splits only needs to actually doing the splits if Jill decides to do the splits or doesn't exercise her power to resist that inclination. Second, an inclination isn't an external action. Jill would be reprimanded for doing the splits, but not for merely being inclined to do them. Third, Thomas distinguishes between three kinds of inclinations depending on where they originate. Thomas calls the inclination that begins in the body and then expresses itself in the soul a passion of the body. We would probably call these feelings. By illustration, if Jack spilled his very, very hot chocolate on his hand while pretending to offer the hot chocolate goblet to the king, he would first feel pain in his body and then afterwards, would feel sadness about it. Thomas calls an inclination that begins in the sense appetite and then expresses itself in the body a passion of the soul. He calls the bodily expression of a passion a corporeal transmutation. <laughs> an example of this. Earlier, when Jack first saw the hot chocolate in the cup with his name on it, his heart rate quickened as an expression of his desire. Finally, an inclination that begins in the intellectual appetite of the will is called an affection of the will. Affections don't always overflow into the sense appetite because the intentional object of an affection isn't always more than a merely sensible good or evil. But affections can overflow into the sense appetite because even our most abstract intentional objects are represented in our imagination in images. And these images sometimes have spicy sensory content. Suppose, for example, moments before ordering his hot chocolate, Jack realizes that he could ask the barista not to put a spill stick into his drink, and that this would be a chivalrous act on on his part in order to shield Jill from something she fears. So when he thinks about this act of chivalry, chivalry, even though the act itself isn't a sensible good, what he imagines is detailed enough to elicit an overflow into his sense appetite. And his lightning six-year-old body trembles at the thought of this chivalrous act. That's overflow. And just to complicate things even more, I, following many contemporary Thomists and using the word emotion to refer collectively to the inclinations number two and three, that's to say, passions of the soul and affections of the will. For various reasons, Thomas didn't bother with the collective term. We have completed a definition. <laughs> Here are three quick practical applications that I think are worth considering. First, Strive to become aware of the intentional objects that elicit your emotions. If the only aspect of an emotion that you're aware of is the sensation that it gives you, or else what it drives you to do, you're missing out on one of the most important aspects of what an emotion is, namely a way of being related to objects. Second, recognize both intellectually and experientially, the difference between the emotions we feel, the decisions we make, and the actions that follow, or usually follow from them. Third, recognize, intellectually and experientially, the difference between an affection and its overflow into the sense, appetite, and body. Just because Jack and Jill's parents, Jane and John Doe, (laughs) Just because they no longer experience an overflow when they look at each other doesn't mean the affection is gone. There's plenty of room for bad Hallmark cards here. (laughs) Part two, some distinctions that Thomas draws among the emotions. Thomas recognizes 11 basic emotions. And he most often calls them passions, but in several places, he implies that these can also be affections. In describing how the emotions differ, he divides them initially into two groups. And consider for a moment what you would do if you were told to name 11 emotions and sort them into two groups. A few of us wouldn't even get to 11. Most of us would probably sort them into nice and not so nice emotions. And then a few elite among us would probably say good intentional object versus bad intentional object. Right? Not Thomas though. Thomas following his teacher, Albert the Great, and the ancient Greeks sorted the 11 emotions into the concupiscible emotions, whose objects are either loved or hated in themselves, or the irascible or champion emotions whose objects are either useful, or not useful, for attaining what we love or hate in themselves. Let's take up the concupiscible emotions first. The concupiscible emotions arise when we're apprehending something that, on its own, is either pleasant or noble, or unpleasant or ignoble. Suppose, to pass the time and to entertain the kids, John decides to interview his wife Jane, who happily (coughs) plays along. Jane, in general, how do you feel about coffee? I love it. And how do you feel about the coffee that's being brewed right over there? I want it. And how will you feel when you're finally drinking that coffee in a cup with your name on it? I'll enjoy it. Very interesting. Now, Jane, in general, How do you feel about stinky garbage? I hate it. And how would you feel if someone started walking toward you with stinky garbage in a cup with your name on it? I'd feel aversion. And how would you feel if the stinky garbage cups came so close to you that you could no longer smell the nice coffee? I'd be sad. In general, I think Thomas would love this interview. (laughs) He would also want to add two clarifying remarks. First, he would draw our attention to the pattern common to the emotions that arise in response to goods and evils. In each case, we have, first, an appetitive response to the thing in general, love, hate. Second, an appetitive response to the thing as potentially present, that's to say, as moving toward us, and that would be desire and aversion. And then third, we have an appetitive response to the thing as actually present or as resting upon us or in us, and that is pleasure and pain or joy and sorrow. Second, Thomas would want to distinguish between the two ways that we rest with a present good or evil. The sense appetite experiences pleasure and pain, but the intellectual appetite experiences these things, but also joy and sorrow. The difference, says Thomas, is when we experience joy, we not only have something that is good, but we are aware of it. And this increased awareness leads to an increased response to the thing. On to the irascible emotions. The irascible emotions arise when concupiscible goods are difficult to acquire or when concupiscible evils are difficult to avoid. Back to the Starbucks line. Suppose that while John and Jane both love coffee, John drinks it occasionally, and Jane is addicted. Suppose that when the Doe family first approached the store, they realized that the wait could be upwards of 40 minutes. For John, coffee, which he loves, now appears difficult to acquire because of the long line. For Jane, a headache, which she hates, now appears difficult to avoid, again, because of the long line. John has the ability to focus his attention either on the coffee or on the difficult line. It seems to me that if he focuses on the coffee, he'll experience hope, which is an inclination to approach the good. If he focuses on the difficulty of the line, he may experience despair which is an inclination to give up approaching the good. Jane, similarly, has the ability to focus her attention either on the headache or on the line. If she focuses on the line, she'll experience daring, an inclination to face the difficulty. If she focuses on the headache, she'll experience fear, an inclination to flee from the difficulty. Let's zero in for a moment on two particular expressions of fear, which Thomas calls species. the intentional object of fear is always a future evil, which is possible but difficult to avoid. We can focus on different aspects of that future evil, though, and this variation in focus can make a difference in our repetitive response. If Jane focuses on the unknowability of the future headache, she experiences anxiety. If Jane focuses on how John will blame her, for her past acts that gave her a caffeine addiction, she experiences shame. Shame is interesting because it looks both forward at the bad reputation that she'll acquire and also backward at the bad acts that (coughs) merited that reputation. The fifth and final irascible emotion, anger, stands out from the others in several ways. Suppose that with only eight people left in the line ahead of the Doe family, and as Jane wrestles with shame and anxiety, John notices a group of five teenagers cut to the front of the line. Suddenly, John forgets about the coffee, about Jane, and about everything other than injustice and revenge. <laughs> he sees only a present evil, an injustice, and in response, is inclined to restore justice by inflicting vengeance upon the offenders. Thomas elaborates, Anger is unique in that it requires judgments. Presumably, the judgments go something like this. I have been wronged by so-and-so. So-and-so should be punished. The punishment should be (laughs) such-and-such. Not such-and-such. (laughs) Thomas even remarks that people who are too drunk to make judgments don't get angry. (laughs) You wonder what was happening at the University of Paris in the 13th century? And where was Thomas? (laughs) Thomas would also say, uh, anger isn't merely a set of judgments, but rather a response to those judgments. That's to say, anger is a desire to inflict evil punishment on another under the aspect of doing good, namely, restoring justice. And the bodily expression of anger, as we all know, is the boiling of the blood around the heart. What about a practical takeaway? I'll restrict myself just to one. Since all of the emotions arise only because we love something, strive to become aware of what you love. Part three, how the emotions can be disordered. In this part, I'll begin with an account of what disorder in emotions is in general, and we'll then note three ways that disorder can express itself. According to Thomas, an emotion is disordered if it expresses something contrary to or not following from right judgment. There are a few things we should note about this claim. First, An emotion is well-ordered only if it is ordered to, or by, right judgment. An emotion isn't well-ordered just because it follows any old judgment. The daily act of justifying our responses by supplying judgments that shows them to be good shows this assumption to be wrong. Second, an emotion that isn't ordered to, or by, right judgment is called disordered, and not necessarily sinful. On Thomas's account, something is sinful only if it is both disordered and voluntary. Emotions, he says, are voluntary either if they're commanded by the will or if they're not checked by the will. Thomas has a lot to say about whether and how particular emotions are sinful, but I'm going to focus on only identifying disorder, at the very least because it's more practical to do so. The way to heal a broken leg is the same, whether you broke it on purpose or not. So with the intention of being practical, we'll move on to three ways that disorder shows up in the emotions. One way emotions can be disordered is by responding to things as more or less than what they really are. Consider John and the line cutters. Suppose John rightly judges that an injustice has been done and that punishment is due. His anger could still be disproportionate, either by desiring a punishment disproportionate to the nature of the crime, like making the kids pay for everyone's drinks, united in the line, or else it could be disproportionate by desiring in a manner disproportionate to the offense. That's to say, John could desire to hear the kids apologize to everyone one by one even more than he desires being with his wife and his kids. It's easy to identify disproportionate emotions in our experience, but it's not so easy to identify the cause of this disproportion. Thankfully, Thomas has done the hard work for us. We know that an emotion is determined by its intentional object. So in order to identify where a disproportionate emotion comes from, We only need to consider what powers are involved in the formation of intentional objects. One of these powers is called the cogitative power. The task of the cogitative power is to give us an immediate (coughs) evaluation of the goodness or badness of a present image. It's immediate in that it doesn't survey or calculate anything. It has only one trick. It finds similarities. In John's case, the cogitative sense does something like this. In response to the present image of the teenagers cutting the line, his cogitative power searches through his memories for an image similar to that in some way. It finds an image of when John was four in line for Santa. And older kids cut. And John didn't get to see Santa. The cogitative power regards the present image not only because it's similar in its sensory content, it applies to that present image the same appetitive value that the other one had. Namely, this is a grave injustice. (laughs) After this comparison, the present image gets stored in the sense memory with that old but also now new appetitive value. And as a spoiler alert, the intellect can intervene to push back on the cogitative power's association of similar appetitive value to similar images. But if this doesn't happen, then the cogitative power will continue to reuse that old original memory, and perhaps this new one, as a pattern for new emotional responses. A second way that emotions can be disordered is by arising independently from judgments of reason. Thomas calls these kinds of emotions antecedent because they go before the judgment. These differ from consequent emotions which follow the judgment of reason. Antecedent judgments are disordered because they prevent or make difficult judgments of reason. How? They prevent tranquility of the mind, Thomas says, presumably by diverting our attention away from deliberation and toward whatever thing the emotion is inclining us to do. Since we can't pay attention to two things at the same time,
0: antecedent emotions
1: have the effect of diverting us from reason. This is disordered, even if the antecedent emotion happens to incline us to the same action that we might eventually judge to be good. To illustrate, Let's suppose that as the Doe family approaches the front of the line, Jill begins screaming for a cake pop. Jane is trying to study the menu to decide what would be best for Jill to have, but the screaming is hard to ignore. Even if the cake pop really is the best option, it would still be better for Jill to desire the cake pop because Jane decides that it's good this is better than for her to desire it without any consideration for what's good. The ultimate problem with antecedent emotions isn't so much that they, they arise temporally before a judgment, but that they arise independently from that judgment. Suppose, for example, that after dozens of trips to Starbucks, Jill comes to realize that every time her mother chooses something for her, it's so good, good enough, that she can jump up and down to the light. Over time, Jill might even begin to jump up and down in anticipation of what her mother will choose. In this case, the emotion is temporally antecedent to the judgment of reason by Jane, but it's causally dependent on Jane's judgments in the past. A third and final way that disorder can manifest itself in our emotional life is by an absence of emotions that ought to be Let's return to John at the moment when he spots the five line cutters. Suppose that John has read Thomas's account of the emotions very superficially. <laughs> and he has wrongly concluded that all emotions detract us from making good judgments. He rightly judges that an injustice has been committed, that it would be good for the kids to suffer some consequence for their crime, and that the most reasonable way for this to happen is for John to tell them to go to the back of the line. After a few moments of hesitation, during which time John wonders whether the kids might retaliate and whether he might end up looking like a powerless goody-two-shoes, John eventually says, excuse me, kids, you cut the line and it's not fair. Go back like everyone else. (laughs) This doesn't sound disordered, I made it sound disordered. This doesn't sound disordered, but from Thomas's perspective, it's not as ordered as it could be. Imagine the same scenario, but with consequent anger, summoned, that's to say, or allowed to arise in order to assist the execution of John's good judgments. With the assistance of anger, John will probably skip all of his second guessing and will speak his line with the fervor that's appropriate to his good judgments. He might not choose different words, but the meaning will come through differently. Who do you think you are? Get to the back of the line and show some good respect. From Thomas's perspective, the emotion that follows a good judgment is good for two reasons. First, it gives us the energy to execute our good judgment, and second, because it allows the whole of our human nature, and not only our intellect and will, to participate in that good act. My image of this is the Fred Flintstone car. I imagine, those of you who haven't seen this or there's a toy that's that's much like it, I imagine that the intellect is riding shotgun and it's navigating. The will has its hands on the wheel and its feet on the brake and possibly on the gas. And the emotions are in the back seat and with their feet kind of going to the bottom of the car, they're helping to propel the car. They can be overridden by the will, but it's best if the emotions assist with the will and the intellect, collectively determined to be good. What about a practical application? It's worthwhile distinguishing intellectually between the different expressions of disorder and the emotions, because doing this helps us to distinguish them in our experience. And that's worthwhile, because the different expressions of disorder might call for different remedies. And this is where we will turn our attention last. Part four how disordered emotions can be healed. Thomas doesn't have any works devoted to the topic of healing. And he never uses the word healing in relation to the emotional life. So, in the final part of my talk, I'm going to try to draw on the principles presented thus far to propose what I think Thomas would have meant by the phrase healing of disordered emotions if he had used it. And also, I'll look at what practical measures Thomas would have recommended for bringing this healing about if someone had asked him. By way of preface, though, I'd like to note four things that we shouldn't take the phrase healing of disordered emotions to mean. First, it doesn't mean merely the healing of our understanding of the emotions. It's a good thing to address our ignorance and our errors about what emotions are, and this might even be necessary for the healing of our experience. But John and Jane's knowing how they ought to respond emotionally in the Starbucks line doesn't mean that their emotions follow suit. Second, the healing of the emotions doesn't mean merely ceasing to act on disordered passions. This is indeed a step toward healing and a necessary one at that, but it's only a step Being inclined to body slam a line cutter is still disordered, (laughs) even if you don't actually do it. (laughs) Third, the phrase doesn't mean merely preventing the occasions that elicit the disordered emotion. This is mere symptom management. Hiding the spill sticks from Jill will prevent her fear from manifesting itself. And this might be a necessary short-term solution, but it won't heal Jill in the long term since it only prevents the expression of disorder and does nothing about the disorder's underlying cause. Fourth, the phrase also doesn't mean merely managing the bodily manifestations of disordered emotions by doing other bodily things, like drinking wine to stop fearful trembling, or taking a bath to reduce the heaviness of the sar. Those are Thomas's suggestions. Acting on these suggestions would reduce the symptoms of emotional disorder once they've arisen, but as above, they leave untouched the disorder's cause. What the phrase healing of disordered emotions does mean is the restoration of the proper order among our powers of apprehension and appetite. That is among our senses, intellect, will, and sense appetite. The sign of these powers are related in proper order is that each of them can freely do all it's able to do in conjunction with the others and without impeding the activity of the others. This means that the intellect making use of the senses reveals all the truths that it perceives. It means that the will directs the intellect to focus on one truth or another so that the will can both delight in and choose what appears not only to be good, but to be best. And the sense appetite imitates, in its own way, the motions of the will. In my reading, there are three main practices that Thomas indirectly recommends to us to help restore our powers to this proper order. The Thomistic principle behind these three practices is the same. The principle is that the emotions are rational by participation. This means, roughly, that the emotions are a bit like four-year-old Jill. On the one hand, they make a mess of things if they're left to themselves and not given any direction. On the other hand, they'll rebel if their own agency is completely denied. And on the third hand, they'll do very well if occasional tantrums are tolerated but not indulged, and if they're given clear, persistent, and age-appropriate direction. Practically speaking, we can restore order in the emotions by consciously and consistently directing our attention to reality as we know it to be, and not merely as we imagine it to be. We accomplish this in particular through three things, and probably in this order. First, fast. Second, contemplate. Third, pursue wisdom. In short, become a Dominican. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) But it does help. (laughs) Here's a quick look at each practice and why it helps. Number one, fast from paying attention to what occasions disordered emotions. Suppose Jane is diabetic and she has a sweet tooth. Suppose that every time she fixes her attention on a mocha cookie crumble frappuccino, her emotions scream, you must have that. It's the greatest thing ever. It's the only thing living for. (laughs) What needs to happen here, at least as an initial step, should be obvious. Jane needs to stay away from frappuccinos. Perhaps not physically stay away from them, because sometimes the frappuccinos surround you but definitely she needs to stay away from them with her attention. This, as I said earlier, is a temporary but a necessary step. It's temporary because merely avoiding the occasion of disordered emotions doesn't address the root of the disorder, which is the intentional object. It's necessary, though, because unless Jane is given some relief from the experience of the disordered emotion, she won't have the ability to attend thoughtfully to the reordering of the intentional object. This temporary and necessary step is also hard. It's hard because our emotions have a kind of inertia about them, such that we need to redirect our attention, not seven times, but 70 times seven times. Most of us over the age of four have learned that, in order not to be overcome by the difficulty, we need to decide from the outset to persevere, come what may. If we wait for the emotional inspiration to persevere, we'll be waiting much longer than 40 minutes, and it will probably leave us just as quickly. Practice number two, devote yourself to contemplation, that is to resting your attention on the greatest truths. In the context of seeking to restore order to our emotions, fasting is the initial step we have to first direct our attention away from what leads to disorder. But since it's impossible to pay attention to nothing, except perhaps after a 1pm class, (laughs) we we need also to direct our attention toward something. I propose that contemplating or resting our attention on a higher truth is an intermediate step in the process of healing the emotions. Let's go back to Jane for a demonstration. Suppose she's decided, whenever she is tempted to rest her attention on a mocha cookie crumbled frappuccino, to consciously direct her attention to how God the Father gazes upon her with love. If she can rest her attention there, she'll experience relief, not only from tumultuous emotions, but she'll also experience joy, that is to say, the delight that comes from being in the presence of what is good and knowing it. In order that you not question my orthodoxy and my tomism, I'd like to clarify what I mean by calling contemplation intermediate. Contemplation is an intermediate step in the process of healing because it's a prerequisite for the final step of reordering the intentional object. At the same time, however, contemplation is an ultimate goal for us in the activity of being human. In the ordinary course of life, moments of rest are intermittent, because our attention is only intermittently fixed on any one thing. But these moments of contemplation, of restful, joyful attending, even while we wait in line at Starbucks, these are a foretaste of what we will enjoy forever, uninterrupted in heaven. The dynamism of the emotions reflects this in their own way. All of the emotions, Thomas says, resolve ultimately into either sorrow or joy, into either resting with the absence of what we love or resting in its presence. Practice number three, pursue wisdom. For Thomas, wisdom doesn't mean knowing all things, or even knowing the greatest things. Wisdom means, rather, knowing how all things are ultimately connected to the greatest of things. In other words, the person who is wise can see God in all things, and all things in God. This sounds lofty, and how it relates to the process of the reordering of the emotions is far from obvious. As you come to expect though, I'll appeal to Jane for a demonstration and will then give some clarifying remarks. When we last saw Jane, she had succeeded in turning her attention away from the thought of a frappuccino and toward the thought of a loving father. Within the repose of contemplation, Jane was able to reflect on the various truths involved in her frappuccino encounters. She recognizes that while all of these truths are true, some of the truths are higher or more important than others. It's true that frappuccinos are delicious and that hardworking moms deserve treats. But it's more true, or more important in this case, that frappuccinos are like poison for diabetics. Jane knows the higher truth with her intellect, but up to this point, the higher truth hasn't shown up in her imagination when she thinks about the frappuccino. She decides, therefore, each time her attention wanders toward a frappuccino, to think, this is a sweet thing that is poison to me. And while she does this, she will imagine some of the details of her last diabetic episode. This is the pursuit of wisdom in action. Jane isn't denying any of the truths involved but she's trying to bring into the foreground of her imagination the truth that she knows to be more important than all the others. At the risk of belaboring this point, here's an analogy from my own experience not involving Starbucks. Mm -hmm. When I was an undergraduate, someone did me the great disservice of pointing out that the metrical pattern of St. Thomas's hymn, Tonto Ergo, was the same as the tune of Oh My Darling. (laughs) <laughs> that stuck in my imagination, and now it's sticking in yours. <laughs> and I had to consciously try to unstick it for years. Here's what I did. I decided that whenever Oh My Darling came up, I would think of what the Eucharist is. And then deliberately imagine one of my favorite chant settings, which seems to embody in sound the meaning of sacrificial love far more than, oh my darling. That's not very hard, by the way. Just so you have a tune. By way of conclusion, I'd like to return to a question that I alluded to much earlier in the talk. St. Thomas doesn't have any works devoted to the topic of healing. Why not? I'm going to step out of my area of expertise and make some cultural observations that I think are relevant to answering this question. I'm doing this not to be cavalier, but because the question can't be answered philosophically and because the flourishing of philosophy in any age depends on the existence of a culture that's open to wisdom, or at least isn't inherently opposed to it. Why didn't Thomas write about healing? In part, because Thomas's culture, culture was materially poor, person-centered, and almost obsessed with the objective meaning of things. Our culture, in contrast, is materially decadent, system-centered, and obsessed with finding subjective meaning. Thomas's account of the emotions takes for granted that the way to resolve disordered symptoms is to resolve the cause of the disorder. Material decadence challenges this conviction since it makes commonplace the temporary relief of symptoms without addressing the cause. Thomas's account of the emotions takes for granted that all actions are actions of human beings and that our emotions, accordingly, primarily manifest our relationship with persons. A culture in which systems, avatars, and anonymity dominates erodes our sense of personal agency and obscures the possibility of a person-centered response to our tumultuous emotions. Tom's account of the emotions, lastly, takes for granted that well-ordered emotions are desirable, not only in themselves, but because well-ordered emotions are one aspect of a well-ordered life. A culture that reduces meaning to your personal passion looks with suspicion on the claim that certain truths are objectively higher, and as such, should be looked to and contemplated. In short, it seems to me that Thomas didn't answer any questions about healing because most people in his day didn't have them. But we do have them, and we should ask them.
0: Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.